This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In case the unprecedented campaign or the stunning victory three weeks ago weren't indication enough, the administration of President-elect Donald Trump promises to be, quote, the most shocking one to three years that America has seen in generations, unquote. That comes from Robert Blaha, who co-chaired Trump's Colorado campaign. Blaha is now helping regionally in the transition. He says Colorado will play a major role in doing the administration's business in the West. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Good to be here. The most shocking one to three years America has seen. Yeah. Would you expound on that? Yeah. I, I think if you look at the amount of regulations that will be reduced, the regs that will be kind of attacked and removed, uh, the big organizations that will be looked at and uh, and in some ways either dismantled or see money be- move back to the states, I think you're going to see some major, major changes that are all good for everybody in America, whether you're left, right, old, young, black, white, conservative, world doesn't make any difference. I think it's going to be a very, very good time with very major changes. You talk about institutions potentially being dismantled. What do you mean? Well, I think uh, things like the Department of Education. I mean, where does that money best sit? Who are the best people to make those decisions? There'll be decisions like that that will be made be made in healthcare about potentially seeing block grants back to the states. There could be a lot of major, major changes that all should move, uh, move America in a very positive way. So I think it's going to be a very exciting time. Trump has made a lot of big statements about what he would do if elected president, cutting taxes, eliminating lobbyists. But there are signs he may be walking back from some of those things uh, now that he's president-elect and walking back from others. For instance, prosecuting Hillary Clinton, (laughs) immediately getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. What should people make of that? Well, I think when you you are uh, placed in the position of being the leader, you have to make very good decisions for everybody in in America. And I think what you're seeing is now as the administration is formed and different people are brought in, uh, a lot of analysis analysis going on, a lot of people looking at specific issues and coming up with very granular plans on the how-tos. I don't know how much is actually going to be walked back. I think what we'll see is we'll see a refinement of a lot of policies. We'll see t- uh, fine-tuning of a lot of policies and, and policies being tuned in. Uh, but I think a, a lot of the things that Donald Trump said he meant. He meant them very sincerely. Is this an example of where you campaign in poetry and govern in prose? Well, no. Uh, I think it's I think it's a great example of where you, you say the things at the moment that make sense and you refine them as time goes on. It doesn't mean you back them up. It means you, you make statements about where things are at the moment in time. And as you learn more, as you get educated more, as you have more and more people around you that are experts, you refine and you get better. You know, one of the things about strategic intent is you start with a big strategy. And the big strategy here is pretty clear. And that is make America great. And then you go to sub-strategies, like how do you do that? What are the four or five major things you do, including reducing regulation, empowering individuals, empowering the states? And then you get very specific after that. We're about to that third stage. Do you think that voters will be disappointed who voted for the grander vision that Trump laid out? 
No. And the uh, more and the more immediate action. No, I think people I think people are actually going to be excited about what happens because what we're going to see is we're going to see some very very major decisions made in some ways draconian actions, in other ways refinements. You mentioned the Affordable Health Care Act. Why would you not look at key components that might make sense in the Affordable Care Act like uh, portability, like uh, things that uh, are pre-existing conditions, like allowing people that are that are currently underneath their their parents' uh, health care to stay there. Why wouldn't you take the things that you think might make sense and use them to refine and make a better policy and eliminate Obamacare, the H, you know, the Affordable Care Act, and move in a different direction? And people now can take that and spin that and say, "Well, wait a second, he's not living up to what he said." No, what he said, I think he's going to live up to, but I think refine is the key word here. In his presidential transition video released last week, yeah. Trump lays out an optimistic agenda for his administration. Let's listen. My agenda will be based on a simple core principle, putting America first. Whether it's producing steel, building cars, or curing disease, I want the next generation of production and innovation to happen right here on our great homeland, America. Robert Blaha, how do you see Colorado informing that vision or benefiting from it? I think that's a great question. I think Colorado is going to be very important when you look at two or three specific areas. Uh, one of the areas is the use of, of public lands. I think you're going to see some major changes in, in what we do with public lands. That includes an energy policy that's in all of the above. That means that uh, when and where it makes sense, when and where it makes sense to allow public lands to be further engaged in the uh, in the energy policy, you're going to see that. You're going to see some changes in uh, and what has happened in the past, you're going to see uh, Colorado much more involved, and I think uh, than it's been in, in. I mean, this has been a flyover state for decades. We all know that, but I think Colorado is very much back in the hunt now, and uh, and I'm, I feel really good about that. Sorry. So first to energy, you see more drilling on federal lands where where that would be appropriate. That would be my analysis, uh, and I think the the important thing is the regulations, the overburdened regulations that we have seen in this state has been enormous. And I think what we're going to see is a uh, more calculated, thoughtful approach to when and where regulations make sense, when they protect the environment, fine, let's go with it. When it's just over-regulating to regulate, let's stop that. And what do you mean to say that Colorado has been flyover country and that it will be back in the hunt? Well, I, a, lot, a lot of times uh, the, the, you know, the central part of the, of the country, if you look at uh, typical voting patterns, patterns and you look at where people wind up actually getting airtime, a lot of times it's on the coast. And I think what I, I have come to know as getting to know the Trump campaign and, and Mr. Trump and the people around him is they are really looking at a national policy, national ideas, national leaders, people that come from every walk of life, uh, old, young, black, white, as I said earlier. And the important thing there is that as that happens and you get other states engaged and other people just other than just the coast folks, you wind up having a much more balanced approach. I think we're going to see that. Can you give me some more examples of where you think Colorado will play a role? So you talk about energy. I think there were some others. Well, energy, I think, is, you know, oil and gas. Oil and gas is is a subset of energy, but energy in the macro. I think, uh, you know, there's a huge, huge amount of shale in Colorado. A lot of people know that. And uh, I, th I think we're going to see that pursued. I think we're going to see uh, Colorado plugged in, in in the healthcare area. From this perspective, we have a lot of very good healthcare experts in Colorado that have been involved 
involved for a number of years. So we're going to probably see some involvement there. We're going to see some people in the administration that will be engaged. And I think it's going to be a good time for Colorado. Shale has been something of a boom-bust cycle yeah, on the West yeah. Slope for sure. And it's energy intensive to get it out of the ground. It is. It is. Uh, you talked about the potential personalities that could come from Colorado. There was talk of Bob Beaupre potentially as Secretary of Interior. Any other names that you can drop from the transition process? Well, we'll let we'll let the pundits uh, come up with the names and and uh, and spin whether the probabilities are low or high. But I will say this: that I think this is going to be an all inclusive administration. It's going to look at a lot of people for a lot of jobs. And, and let's face it: you know, keep in mind we've got Region Eight here. I'm sure you're aware of that. So we have a lot of very senior positions in our region, in our region that that are here that will be filled out in a number of different places, including, you know, Department of of Interior, the U.S. Attorney's Office, Department of Labor. We have a lot of very senior positions in this state that will wind up being populated. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Robert Blaha, who co-chaired Donald Trump's campaign in Colorado getting a sense for what he thinks the Trump administration will mean for this state. He is helping now regionally in the transition. We should say as well that there have been Colorado names floated for judges. Timothy Timkovich, for instance, Neil yeah. Gorsuch being floated for the Supreme Court. Can you say anything about those possibilities? Well, we, we have a number of good Supreme Court nominees. And keep in mind, we also have current openings at the federal level. We have federal bench positions that are open. So we're going to see a number of appointments. And those are very important things. And the reason those are important is because those are not four to eight-year decisions. As we know, federal appointed judge positions as well as the Supreme Court are lifetime positions. So as we see those court positions filled out, they're going to be very important to the direction that America goes. I wonder if to some extent Colorado will play an adversarial role with a Trump administration. Hillary Clinton won the state's nine delegates and you have a Democratic governor who says he'll resist some of Trump's proposals if enacted. Mass deportations, if those occur, reversing clean energy mandates. You mentioned legacy energy, but not much in the way of wind or solar. Do you see Colorado as uh, causing trouble for the Trump administration? I I see Colorado as having a voice, and I think that's important. And, and, you know, when you look at a state that that swung by less than 3 percent, I I don't think there's any kind of mandate for, uh, you know, for our current sitting governor to to say he's got anything that uh, would stand up and say that what Trump is saying is going to is going to be vigorously opposed by this state. But particularly when you get to the outlying regions, when you look at how the state voted in the outlying region, it was overwhelmingly supportive of Trump. Overwhelmingly. Now, if you look at the Denver Metroplex, that's a different situation. But if you look at the areas where energy would impact things, it was overwhelmingly supportive of Mr. Trump. Over the weekend, Trump tweeted that he would have won the popular votes, quote, if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Robert Blaha, this claim is false. He provided no evidence to back it up. And according to NPR, its source can be traced to a radio host who also claims the Sandy Hook massacre was fake. Does it worry you that the president-elect embraces conspiracy theories? Well, you know, I I don't think I'm in a position to comment about that specific issue. But what I will say is that um, what this administration will do is as it is built out with world-class people, you'll have a balance of different folks that come out. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not responsible for all Mr. Trump's tweets, but I will say this much. Some of them have been very interesting. 
Interesting. Interesting. Say, say more about that. If you were advising him, would you want him to change his relationship with Twitter? Well, I'm not being asked to advise Mr. Trump right now. But what I would say is that consistency is important. And I think a lot of what he said on Twitter has been very important. I'm not aware of this, the, of, of this specific tweet you're referring to. Uh, this tweet came over the weekend and uh, essentially says he thinks he would have won the popular vote, but but he says that there's been widespread voter fraud and, and uh, provides no evidence for that. Uh, you have talked about this being an inclusive administration. And I want to point out that white nationalists have taken a great deal of pride in Trump's victory. Recently, the National Policy Institute met in Washington, D.C., and I want to just listen to a part of a speech given by Richard B. Spencer, a member of that organization. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. We build, we produce, we go upward. And we recognize the central lie of American race relations. We don't exploit other groups. We, we don't gain anything from their presence. They need us and not the other way around. During and at the conclusion of that speech, there were a number of Nazi salutes and cries of Hail Trump, specifically. Uh, meanwhile, a man who's given voice to white nationalism, Steve Bannon, is a key advisor to Trump. Where do you place that movement in relation to, to Trump? And what would you tell people who are very nervous about it? Well, what I find interesting is that it keeps coming up. And it's interesting that it seems that the the mainstream media likes to talk about this. Mr. Trump has disavowed on numerous occasions every comment about any form of uh, Nazi support, any white supremacist issues. Uh, it's been crystal clear. He's done that you know, every time. Is he supposed to for every tweet that comes up and every single individual across this country that says anything to have to make a comment? He has been crystal clear. I think there are some who want him to be clearer and who say that. Well, he, I don't know who that would be because he's been crystal clear. So you, who would they? Who would that be? When you say those who want them to be, who would they be, and what would their backgrounds be? Um, I imagine that they are people uh, who are minorities and who feel. Who would threatened. they be? Uh, you know, I don't have a specific person to bring to you, okay. but a general sense that. He might denounce white nationalism as He's loudly done that. as he does radical Islamic terrorism. He's done that. He's done that numerous times. And you feel to a, a sufficient degree. Well, I think he has. But he's, I mean, it's been over and over and over again. As I said, at what point is enough enough? You were a fan of Trump's early on. I was. Was it the idea of shaking things up, doing them differently? What well, I'm a, you to him? it's a great question because I'm a business guy. And I will tell you, as a businessman, if you, if you do the same thing over and over again, you will get the same outcomes. We've had the same mentality in Washington for decades and decades on both sides of the aisle. This is not a left or right or conservative liberal issue. This is a permanent political class issue. What Donald Trump represented to me very early was the ability to stand up against that permanent political class and say, let's do something different. Let's give the average American an opportunity he has not had or she has not had before. Let's begin to uh, unwind some of these huge bureaucracies. Let's remove people from positions of power that have been there for decades. Let's not allow people to go and be lobbyists after they are uh, public servants at, and continue to feed at the, at the trough. 
And a lot of the things he said early, I'm not talking about the hyperbole. I'm talking about the substance. A lot of the things he said early, I agreed with. And you, I thought that makes a lot of sense. You like his business-oriented approach? There are questions about conflicts of interest in his business holdings and whether he needs to surrender control of them. What are your thoughts? You know, uh, the, the interesting thing about this is we've never been confronted with this before, have we? We've never had a president that had this level of success that was, you know, that Donald Trump's a, a mega billionaire. Everybody knows that. But the question is how— We don't do you... exactly know that because he hasn't released his taxes. But... Well, it, the—, the your your net worth has very little to do with your tax structure. In any case, you would have to agree with that. Your net worth has very little to do with your tax structure. But it's true that we would know much more about his wealth with but, that. But what what are your the, thoughds about well, a blind the, trust? My my thoughts my thoughts are that uh, over the next probably thirty to ninety days, we're going to see some pretty thorough analysis on how do you do this. You know, do you put a Chinese wall in place? Do you bring a different team in? Do you um, put individuals to oversee certain business transactions to make sure that they, you know, that they meet certain levels of scrutiny? The bottom line is he doesn't, by law, have to do anything. But I'll bet he does do some things because he's going to make sure that it is as transparent as possible and as fair as possible. And that it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this is sorted out because as I've read most of the pundits about this, there's varying degrees of thoughts all the way from, you know, you need to walk away and hand things over to the equivalent of a blind trust to you do nothing. So I think what you're going to see is a lot of very, very smart legal folks lay in on, on the best way to do this that's the fairest and the most supportable. Robert Blaha, what is your role in a Trump administration? Right now, my role is to uh, to help to uh, analyze different positions that are open in in our region, uh, to work with the transition group here in in the state, and to do a great job of it. Do you think you'll have a permanent spot in the administration? <laughs> you know, when, when I started this, when I started this process. Um, that wasn't even a thought in my mind for this reason. You know, I'm a business guy. I've got uh, a lot of business interests here in the state. Uh, we've been very blessed in this country and hadn't even really given it any thought about anything beyond let's get Trump elected. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. Very, very great interview. Thanks a lot. Robert Blaha of Colorado Springs co-chaired President-elect Donald Trump's campaign in Colorado and is now part of his regional transition team. You can hear the thoughts of Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper from last week on what a Trump administration could mean for Colorado at CPRnews.org. Coming up, she was the first and remains the only woman to have led the city of Aurora. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Politicians might expect criticism about their stances on issues, but on the lengths of their skirt... It's a comment Norma Walker said she got a lot when she served as the mayor of Aurora. More than 50 years ago this month, voters elected Walker, making her the first female mayor of a U.S. city with more than 60,000 people. And she says it was all a fluke. We're going to walk down memory lane. Walker joins me from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the program, Norma. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I'll say that you remain the only woman to have led Aurora, serving from 1965 to 67. And politics was sort of a family tradition for you. Is that right? That is correct. Tell me about that. My father was uh, very interested in politics. He encouraged my participation in politics. 
He was a Norwegian immigrant, and he felt very strongly that everybody should have a deep interest in the political uh, aspects of the country. You were elected as mayor of Aurora in 65. What made you run? I, <laughs> I did not like what the current council was doing. I did not feel that they were competent, to tell you the truth, and that is because of a study the League of Women Voters had during that time, and we presented the results of the study. We were the fastest-growing city in the country, oh. and uh, that needed to be addressed, and it was not being addressed, and that uh, got kind of got my goat, I guess. <laughs> I wonder if you thought back to your father at that point. I'm sure I'm sure I did. <laughs> yes. So Aurora was growing by leaps and bounds. You felt that and what this the city's vision wasn't keeping up in your estimation? That's true. We were the fastest growing city in the United States at that point and uh there was much to be done with planning. Uh, anticipating. I had been a member of the Board of Adjustment and Appeals prior to my run for the mayoralty, and uh, and my winning actually was kind of a fluke. So, <laughs> A fluke? <laughs> but I enjoyed the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Explain what you mean by that. Well, the uh, current, the mayor at the time, Mayor Bob Fennig, um, was running for re-election, I was running for election, and a, a gentleman who was involved in real estate was running. Mr. Fennig became ill and withdrew through his support to me, and that is how I won, in my opinion. <laughs> Did it feel like a, a good win, a solid win? Yes, it was pretty solid. I think it was about uh, 500 votes or something. It, it seemed pretty solid at the time. Is it true that your lawn signs simply said Walker? That's true. Was, Absolutely. Was and that an effort to my, hide your gender? or You bet it was. <laughs> <laughs> and and my uh, competitors went, went around and put Norma on all my signs. I see. So... <laughs> So it was a it was a great time, really. <laughs> wow. News reports from the time often mentioned your role as a housewife and often mentioned your looks. Uh, here's a headline that ran in the Rocky Mountain News after the election: "She can feast on victory while the dishes wait." You appeared on the popular game show "What's My Line," in which panelists have to guess a person's line of work through rounds of questioning. No one figured your work out. So you won $50, though one of the panelists said this. Mrs. Walker is so pretty, I'm sure everybody voted for her. Thank you. They Not should. <laughs> and thank you, Mrs. Walker, so soon after entering on such good and high office to coming to visit thank us. Thank you very, very much. Nice. In case you didn't hear that, Mrs. Walker is so pretty, I'm sure everybody voted for her. Uh-huh. Which demeans both Those you and days. yeah, and the voter. How did it feel to have so many people commenting on your looks? Do you note silence on my part here? <laughs> I do. I I was uh, not happy about that, but what do you do? 
you know, one one side of me would say, oh, yeah, that's okay. And the other side would say, no, this is not, this is not right. I have some, some brains up in my skull, and I would like to have those discussed rather than how I appeared. Once you became mayor of Aurora, was it hard to be a part of discussions? Was it hard to have people take you seriously? Or was the election to some extent gravitas? It was difficult to be taken seriously, and I had five members of my council who were um, determined to ignore absolutely anything I tried to do. So the accomplishments that were made had to be done quietly. Uh, Joining the Metropolitan Sewage Disposal District, for instance, we had to not bring it up, bring it up to the council too much because they were obstructionists, and um, I I really felt for Obama the last few years because I understood what obstructionism was You're and listen- is. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Norma Walker, who's looking back on her career. She was the first female mayor of a U.S. city with more than 60,000 people, 50 years ago this month, becoming the mayor of Aurora. You were also criticized for not spending enough time with your husband and three kids. Today, regardless of gender, elected officials have said they struggle with balancing their family and public lives. How did it feel to hear that during your time in office, though? Well, I I just discounted it because I had... I was spending plenty of time with my husband and my children. Um, I had most most of the people who felt I should be at home all the time were women who did not like the fact that I was doing, quote, a man's job. I thought that was very interesting because... One would think that women would be supportive, but that was not the case for me. You didn't want to run for a second term after uh, all of the heartache, but you did. Yes, I did, because I didn't want any potential woman, or not (laughs) any woman who would potentially want to be in office. I didn't want her to think that I had been run out or or, um, I did not want to give a false impression. Wouldn't have been too false, actually, but (laughs) I didn't want them to think that I uh, was afraid or, and I should have been. I had a rock through my window once, but at any rate. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. A lot of, lot of, People who were not happy that I was there in that role, and some were other women and some were men. There was, um, I did some things that I think perhaps upset the apple cart a tad, and that was having the monies of Aurora distributed 
equally among the banks instead of having one bank get it all. Um, things like that one does not do if one wants to stay in office. That's, that's the truth. Were you in your office when The Rock came? I was at home when The Rock came. Ah. The Rock it was, it was like a slingshot, a boulder went through my dining room window and then on into the, through the wall into the, uh, and it was a pretty sturdy wall, into the, went through the living room into the dining room, rather, I'm sorry. So I did have a lot of police protection, um, and we had a wonderful police department. They were very kind to me, and um, I've always appreciated what they were able to do. You did not win that re-election, lost by a small margin. When you left office, you got out of politics altogether, became involved in the arts, particularly ballet, then got into painting and sculpting. Aurora has not had a female mayor since. Any guesses as to why that is? I have no idea. I, I, I think it's very unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate that women do not run for office, that many do not pay any attention to what is happening uh, politically in their in their city or their town when they could be such a positive influence. It's it's a shame, but that's that's changing. But very gradually, good grief! I was there fifty years ago. That <laughs> that's a while, you know. But it's it's getting better all the time. Not enough, but better. Norma, thank you. Thank you. Norma Walker was elected mayor of Aurora around this time in 1965, making her the first female mayor of a major U.S. city. She's now 88 and lives outside Portland, Oregon. You can see photos from when Walker was in office at cprnews.org. Coming up, the latest boat to bear Colorado's name. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This coming Saturday in Connecticut, a bottle of sparkling wine will crack over a new submarine. Its name, the USS Colorado. She's the latest in a series of boats dating back before the Civil War, named for our landlocked state. John Mackin heads a state committee helping give the sub some special Colorado love. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Why, why will this particular boat carry the Colorado name? Well, it's the Secretary of the Navy is the person who determines the names of all all the ships in the Navy. And traditionally, states, uh, the name of states were reserved for battleships. But, of course, we don't have any battleships any longer. So since the Virginia-class submarines uh, have been in service, and the first one was commissioned in 2004, they've been naming them after states. How Colorado was picked, we're not quite sure. Many states lobby for uh, a a ship to be named after them. But as far as I can tell, it just kind of fell into Colorado's lab. I see. And uh, what kind of sub is this? Can you describe it for us? So this is a Virginia-class submarine. It's uh, 
nuclear-powered attack submarine. It's the latest class. Uh, we think it's the most uh, powerful uh, attack submarine out there in the world. And um, it's, uh, it's, the fort, it's the 15th uh, submarine of that class, of which they intend to build 40-plus. Uh, How big are they? How many people on board? So we have 134 uh, crew members. And uh, the ship is about 370 feet long, about 7,700 tons. So it's a pretty big submarine, and uh, it goes pretty fast. It's got a nuclear reactor plant that can uh, power it for 30-plus years. Are sailors already assigned to the ship? Yes. Sailors have been on the ship for a couple of years now. And what they do during this construction period is uh, as the shipyard completes the various systems uh-huh. and turns them over to the ship. It's the ship's responsibility to do the final acceptance testing. And for especially the nuclear systems, that's a very extensive testing period. So they are the the operators who operate the all those systems and accept them for the Navy. The sub's christening is Saturday in Groton, Connecticut. What will that ceremony be like? So that ceremony will be uh, the, the essence of the ceremony, after a lot of political speeches, <laughs> is uh, the ship sponsor, who for Colorado is Annie Mabus, one of the daughters of the Secretary of the Navy, will take a bottle of uh, sparkling wine and break it over the ship. And in this particular case, the sparkling wine has been made here in Colorado and by one of our winemakers, Ballesteri Vineyards, have made a special bottle of wine for this. And also, in tribute to the last USS Colorado, the battleship, which was commissioned in 1923, and at its commissioning used Colorado River water. Oh. So in, uh, in uh, reference to that, the bucket that will contain our champagne will be Colorado River water that I just sent out there last week. Okay. You had to send out river water <laughs> right? and to presumably the sparkling wine. So as you said there, there have been other Colorado boats. Uh, tell us about the first. So we've had three uh, previous USS Colorados. The first was a steam frigate that uh, was commissioned in 1858 and saw service in the Civil War uh, was part of the blockading squadron uh, and uh, saw action there and later on uh, also cruised uh, and saw service uh, around the Korean Peninsula. So that, uh, that's, that was the first USS Colorado. And then comes along a World War II era ship. Well, before that was a, a World War I era ah. uh, armored cruiser uh, that was commissioned in 1905. And uh, that was... Uh, saw service in World War World War One, and uh, but to make room for to free up the name Colorado for the battleship, which was to come in 1923, it was renamed the USS Pueblo in 1916. I see. So, so. it completed its uh, service life as the USS Pueblo, and then the battleship uh, was commissioned in 1923 uh, and saw service during World War Two. It earned seven battle stars. It was moored next to USS Missouri in uh, Tokyo Harbor during the signing of the uh, surrender. During the surrender that led to the end of World War II. Yeah. Your committee actually had an event recently and featured a man who served on that Colorado during during World War II 
His name is Ken Jones, and uh, here's how he described the first time he saw the ship, Colorado. When I first saw that ship, I looked up at it, and I think, it's really going to happen. I'm going to get on that big old ship, and we're going to go off to war together, and we're going to fire those big old guns, and we're going to deal death and destruction to the enemy. And surely, we would return home as conquering heroes. We would return home as conquering heroes, he imagined. But then the ship faced uh, the Battle of Saipan and took heavy casualties. Jones remembers the carnage and the gruesome job he and his shipmates faced. We literally had to clean up the ship. And for a 17-year-old boy to be picking up parts of his shipmates and putting them in these basket-type baby structures, you know, that leaves an impression. And so he was responsible for cleaning up, essentially, his shipmates, his fallen shipmates. What does it mean that there will be a new boat, uh, in this case a submarine, that will carry Colorado's name? So part of our responsibility as a commissioning committee uh, is that we want to impart a uh, a sense of Colorado to the ship. We are uh, working with uh, photographer John Fielder, and he is donating the nature uh, photographer the nature photographer uh and he is donating uh, some of his photography and it will be established as a panorama in the cruise mess that will have a big uh picture of a colorado landscape uh for the crew to enjoy while they're out at sea so that that's part of what we're trying to do to impart a flavor of colorado to USS Colorado. And that means John Fielder will be featured on a submarine. Who knew? <laughs> Any other Colorado touches? Well, we are, for the commissioning ceremonies, we are looking to uh, bring a flavor of Colorado and uh, see what um, products from Colorado we can feature at the, co- at the commissioning ceremonies and uh, show off the state of Colorado to all those people back east. And this is happening Saturday, correct? Uh, no, this uh, actually will be – the commissioning will be next summer, uh, and that is the event that our commissioning committee is responsible for organizing. I see, versus the christening. christening. Okay. The christening is a shipyard event, and uh, that that is their responsibility to put on. Okay, and it's a $4.2 billion submarine. Is that is that correct? Uh, 2.5. 2.5. Right. Okay. The next the next class of submarines will be $4.6 billion. <laughs> All right. The new uh, replacement, uh, Ohio replacement submarines. Thanks for being with us. John Mackin lives in Lafayette. He chairs the State Commissioning Committee for the USS Colorado Submarine. It'll be christened Saturday in Connecticut with a commissioning to follow, as he said. You can see a video about the sub and photos of its predecessors, that is, other boats named Colorado, at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe it's the afterburn of the TV series Mad Men, but mid-century modern design remains hot. And you'll find a lot of it in southeast Denver. Crisana Park has close to 200 mid-mod homes. And last week, Denver City Council made it the city's first official mid-mod conservation overlay district. Kate Adams has lived in the neighborhood for more than 40 years. She helped rally her neighbors around the designation. I asked her what she loves about these homes. Her dog, Sammy, barks in the background. The design, the character, the style, 
all the thought that was put into developing this whole area. What is it about the design that makes you think it's thoughtful? It's open. It's survived, what, 70, almost 70 years, and people still love them. It just, it works. But it comes at a cost. Adam says the house requires lots of maintenance. The single-pane windows aren't too efficient. To put this neighborhood into some historical context, I chatted with Annie Levinsky of Historic Denver earlier this year. We stood on the front lawn of a home that was for sale on Edison Way. Annie, thanks for meeting us here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And describe the distinctive characteristics of a mid-mod house, the likes of which we're standing in front of. Well, here in Crisana Park, we do have the California contemporary style of mid-century modern homes, and there are a lot of great distinctive features. You have the post and beam construction, and you see the exposed rafter tails coming out and the, the deep overhanging eaves. You have the clear story windows, those windows that are right up under the roof line. Yeah. Um, on these homes here in, in this neighborhood, you also have a really strong sense that the front is private, um, so you don't have a lot of windows on the front, and you can't always find the front door right away. Uh-huh. Um, they were intended to be a little private on the front and then very open in the back. And so in the back side of these homes, they have big windows opening onto private, beautiful yards and patios. You called this the California style, right? Mm. But we're not in California. How did that happen? Sorry, well, the developer of this um, development, Brad Wolf and his father, were inspired by Joseph Eichler, who was a developer in California, uh, particularly in the Bay Area, but also in the Los Angeles area. And he built and designed about 10,000 homes with architects. Uh, his architects were influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright. And so some of these things that we see here in Crisana Park very much reflect those Eichler-style homes. And the Wright style as well. Yes, and yes, preceded by the Wright style. So they do have that low-slung quality. Um, the interiors have a lot of transparency, a lot of natural materials, um, and light is very important. Now, was that just a creative borrowing? Was that something that the California outfit got money for or what? Uh, You know, I think for the most part, it was a creative borrowing. Uh, There was a local architect involved with the Wolfs who did the development. Um, But if you look at the floor plans, you look at the style, you very heavily see the Eichler influence. So we call these Eichler-esque. Eichler-esque. All right. Um, What do you love about them? You know, I think what is really fascinating about them is the way they're all, there are six different floor plans, but they're all essentially the same floor plan. But just by rotating them on the lots, you create this sense of variability along the street. Interesting. So when I see one house that looks different from the other, it's positioning more than its layout. Exactly. There are a few little features on the models that are different, but primarily it's the same floor plan, just tweaked and shifted all around. And so it was a great economical way to create variety that could be easily mass produced. How many homes are in this particular development? So there are 176 homes in Crisana Park today. Okay, and the the rough building period was what to what? It was about 1954 to about 1957, 58. Um, so a pretty short period in which all of these homes came up. This is obviously the post-war period. What's happening that these homes are sort of the answer to? So Denver has traditionally had a boom and bust economy, and one of our booms was in the post-war era. We had a huge pent-up demand for housing because during the Depression and World War II, very few homes were built. So as soon as that started to turn around, a lot of the GIs who had come through Colorado to train were moving back here to settle. We had a lot of new um, industries starting up, the aerospace industry. So there was all this demand for housing, and there was nowhere for them to go in the center city. And so for the first time, because of the automobile, people could move away from the streetcar lines and from the old 
neighborhoods and get into these new areas. And so Crisana Park, like some of the other mid-century subdivisions in the area, became a hot place to come and buy your brand new single-family home. Affordable? Quite affordable. They were intended to be for middle-class families. These houses sold for just over $15,000, and they all had just slightly different tweaks. For example, you could upgrade a little bit and get a dishwasher or maybe a cherry tree. All right. And there are other developments like this around Denver, probably even beyond. I think of Harvey Park, for instance. So there are very similar storylines happening, I mean, really across the country. Yes, Harvey Park is another one of our great mid-century developments. A little bit later, just a few years, it too is based on the designs from California developers. So Colorado was certainly mimicking our, our neighbors to the west. Well, all right, you want to preserve the character of Crisana Park. What, where does that name come from, by the way, Crisana Park? Yeah, Crisana is named for the landowners who own this land, which was originally an alfalfa field. So Christian and Anna know were the owners. Oh, uh, Chris and Anna. Crisana. Crisana, exactly. So it was an amalgamation of their names to honor them after the land was sold. And indeed, you want to preserve the character of this neighborhood, creating essentially the city's first mid-century modern conservation district. Is that a fancy way of saying you want to infringe on people's property rights and prevent them from doing what they want with their homes? No, I don't think so. Um, It's really just a strategy for managing the kind of development. Um, In all of those boom and bust periods in Denver, we've always also had a conversation about design quality. Crisana Park was an answer to that in the 1950s about how do we get great design in these neighborhoods during a growth boom. And I think the Conservation Overlay District is just a continuation of that same story. In another boom. In another boom, how do we maintain design quality and accommodate growth? So the Conservation Overlay still allows people to do additions, remodels, all kinds of upgrades that contemporary families like to see. It would limit their height. It does limit the height, uh, but in return for that, it allows a larger um, addition to go on the back of the house than would typically be allowed. So there's some latitude there. It's just to try to craft the zoning to reflect what's here on the ground as opposed to a sort of in-the-box solution that could be applied anywhere in the city. What about scrape-offs? Demolition is allowed in a conservation overlay district, so it does not prohibit that. It just provides a few standards for what it could be replaced with. with replaced with, I see. Or what to do if you are maintaining your home. Yes. Uh, now, could that be uh, something of a, of a burden for, I'm, I'm just thinking of middle or lower middle class families who bought before it was hip to be here. In other words, will there be requirements on on maintenance and things like that that could get expensive for someone? No, there are no requirements in a conservation overlay, nor are there in a historic district. That's a misconception people Hmm. often think. There's no requirement to go back and change something that was already done or to do any particular maintenance beyond what you just have to do to make sure your house is safe and habitable according to basic uh, city laws. So no, there's no requirement. Um, And what we have found with conservation overlays and historic districts is that it has a stabilizing effect on property values. And in some cases, they tend to rise slightly faster in those areas than outside of them. So what's the timeline here? I mean, how soon could this be designated? Well, the neighbors and Historic Denver have been working for a couple of years on this project already. Historic Denver uh, first worked on a pattern book for the neighborhood. A pattern book is basically a style book, if you will. A style book that defines what it is that's really special about Crisana Park. And it provides tips for maintenance and renovations. And then the residents here really took the initiative all their own to start the conservation overlay process. And they've been working on it for over a year, making sure that they talk to all the homeowners in the area and make sure everyone understands what it is. There have been a few detractors who have some concerns, I understand, about property rights. But by and large, there's been neighborhood buy-in? 
there has. The neighbors have done a really great job talking to all of their neighbors, going door to door. So they have um, 90% on board with doing this overlay. Well, Annie, I want to start where we began. Will you confirm or deny my theory that Mad Men is fueling the interest in mid-mod architecture? You know, I think the show Mad Men certainly influenced people falling back in love with these homes. Uh-huh. But at Historic Denver, we really saw this starting to happen before Mad Men came on the air. So we have just on the outskirts of Denver, we have two mid-century neighborhoods, Arapahoe Hills and Arapahoe Acres, that were some of the first in the country to be put on the National Register of Historic Places. So I think the trend was starting, but I- I'm sure that, that Mad Men helped push it along. The fuel to the fire. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Annie Levinsky leads Historic Denver. We met her in southeast Denver's Crisanna Park earlier this year. It recently became Denver's first mid-century modern conservation overlay district. Photos from our visit are at cprnews.org. Special thanks to Anthony Cotton and Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.